Hey everyone, welcome to episode 5 of How's That Day, a culture rundown with Tom and Phil. I am Phil Wiedenheft, here to introduce you to my co-host, Mr. Tom Bond. Each week, Tom and I get together to chat about how our days have been going, and together we work through our thoughts on what's going on in pop culture that week. So I'll start this week with the same question that I ask him every week. Tom, how's that day? How's that day? The day is good, Phil. Thank you so much for asking. It is another Saturday, April 14th. It is what I like to call NBA Christmas. It is the first day of the NBA playoffs. Um, The first weekend of the playoffs starts, and there are eight first-round matchups, 16 teams. And the way the NBA does it is they stagger four games on Saturday and four games on Sunday. So if you wanted to, you could basically watch playoff basketball for 11 hours straight on both weekend days. Well, who wouldn't want to do that? And there there are weekends when I've <laughs> there are weekends when I have done it. Didn't do it today. I I watched I didn't watch any of the first game which was Golden State San Antonio. Golden State blew them out, which was expected. I caught a decent chunk of the next game Toronto Washington, which was actually a pretty good game. And then uh saw a little tiny bit of the Philly game, but um the NHL playoffs are also going on and my Bruins played tonight, so I watched them instead, and they dominated again. They won their first two games in the playoffs. So, I just you want to talk about a sport I don't give two shits about. We can talk about hockey. Yeah, I've uh, you know it's funny. Hockey's I don't think it was the first sport that I really loved. I think that was always basketball. But our babysitter, our first babysitter that I remember, her name was Joan. Rest in peace, Joan. She was a huge Bruins fan, and I remember she used to just... We had a little TV in the kitchen in our house, and when my parents would be out and she would babysit the four of us, I just have so many memories of her knitting at the kitchen table watching the Bruins games, and uh, I kind of got into it because of that. I would occasionally watch them while she was there. We had a team called the Dayton Bombers, and the only real experience I ever had with them was one time I went to a bar called W.O. Wright, which is down the street from uh, Wright State University, the big college in the area. Is that like Wilbur Wright? Yeah, yeah, it's like Wright. And, and it's also the the Nutter Center where we saw fish when you came to visit that one time. Legendary fish venue, yeah. Yeah, um, they were they were the, that, the home team there was the Dayton Bombers. And so I was at a bar down the street from there, and I was really drunk and did a karaoke version of let's get it on by marvin gay and a dayton bomber came up to me afterwards while i was at the bar and he said hey man that was really great like really great if you need help on another song we would love to help you out and i said okay and so there so me and the dayton bombers like uh, six or seven of the players from the from the team they were my backup singers for uh purple rain yeah we did purple rain so that was (laughs) that's my hockey story that's all i've got that's amazing. That's uh, Dayton Bombers. So they're not the college Dayton because they're the Flyers, right? Yeah, the Dayton, Dayton Bombers. Flyers. One, they don't exist anymore, but I believe they were a minor league hockey team. Like AHL probably, something like so, that? Yeah, something like that. A minor league affiliate to the National Hockey League. Yeah, sure. So you know. and a bunch of Bombers, while you were bombed, sang some prints. Yeah, that's right. They were... they, <laughs> And Pearl Bahrain... It's not a good karaoke song because it's like six minutes long. Then you're just yelling Purple Rain over and over again. 
I wholeheartedly disagree with you. I mean, maybe purple. that's why it's a, per- a great karaoke yes. song is because yes. you're just yelling Purple Rain over and over again. Because you get to, and then you get to go like, I know, I know, I know, times have changed. Yeah, you, know? you get a, it's a very dramatic song. So it's, we were just so wasted. My, that's my memory of it is that I don't think we did a very good job because of how wasted we were by the time we got to, around to doing it that night. Well, I will wrap that story up by saying Fish, who we saw at the Nutter Center where the Dayton Bombers used to play, they do a great cover of Purple Rain where the drummer, John Fishman, goes to the front of the stage and plays a vacuum. That's weird. Sure is. That's weird. What does a vacuum sound like? (laughs) Kind of like that. Like a broken tuba he basically sucks on the vacuum like he lets the vacuum suck his lips in and then he kind of like scats almost okay man that's fucking... weird <laughs> honestly you it, it is laughable it's it's worth your okay. mockery and derision but if you saw it at a show you would have a ball you would think it was great i would i, I would laugh i would laugh yes. like, look at this fucking guy sucking that's on the a point vacuum i don't cleaner. think <laughs> I don't think anyone's watching it and being like, oh, the height of musical mastery. It's I there, think somebody there. is. There's somebody in that audience who's like, yeah, dude, they're true. genius. Genius. There's someone who's tracking like all the vacuum solos they've seen live. Like, yo, that was my 37th vac solo, bro. Ugh, they're your, hey, man, they're your favorite band, not mine. <laughs> they, they, that is absolutely true. Um, yeah, so the basketball and NHL playoffs all weekend. It's been great. Celtics start their postseason tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Los Angeles time. I will be there whoop, on my couch. Whoop. Yeah, I was gonna say. Oh, I was gonna. Say, oh, you're gonna. I was gonna say. Are you traveling? But then yep. you clarified that you'll be on your couch. I am leaving at the witching hour tonight. Flying straight into the garden. They're dropping me into my seat. It's gonna be great. And then you're flying right back home. Right back home, Excellent. baby. Phil, how's that day? Uh, today was good. Uh, I I slept in. It's a Saturday, so I feel like the. We recorded a recent Saturday episode as well where I had the exact, a very similar day in that I got to sleep in, but I also got a lot accomplished today, so I feel pretty good about the day overall. Uh, That's good. Yeah, I just ate some dinner. We watched Grey Gardens, my fiance and I. Great documentary. It is a great, yeah, it is a great documentary, and I figured we could, you know, we could use it to talk about your little time with Albert. If you wanted to talk a little bit about that, because I was going to mention a little bit about just how great Grey Gardens is and just rewatching it, because I haven't seen it since probably about 2008-ish would be my guess. Yeah, so... so it was a great rewatch, but I figured we, I'd let you talk about it a little bit more since you're closer to it than me. Okay, well, Grey Gardens is a documentary from, I believe, 1975. Albert Mazels was this amazing documentary filmmaker, uh, Massachusetts-based boy, and Grey Gardens came about because him and his brother David, who did the sound for their movies, basically Al was the cameraman and kind of de facto director, although I think they kind of co-directed, and David did the sound. They were commissioned, basically, to uh, do a piece on Jackie Kennedy. While he was doing it, he met these two women, these bizarre ladies who were related to Jackie Kennedy, and basically said to Jackie, like, Hey, uh, we're not going to do you anymore. We're going to go follow these uh, these nutcases back to New York and uh, just follow, film their lives for a bit. And that's literally what Grey Garden is. It's about these two women who live in this dilapidated home overrun by cats and garbage 
and the city wants to shut down the home and force them to move, and they refuse to do it because they're goddamn free-spirited, beautiful, independent women. Yeah, and the reason I wanted you to talk about it a little bit is because shortly after we graduated from film school together, you got a job working for Albert Mazels in Harlem. I did, yeah. I applied for an internship. There's a, Well, at first I saw anyone who's been to New York in the past 10 years or so knows in the New York City taxis they have a TV that is uh, basically playing like the same 20 things over and over again, little news pieces from New York One weather and sports updates, whatever. And I saw this thing about the Maisel's Documentary Center opening up in New York, or it had just opened in New York, and it was a little one theater screening room that plays really underseen films, particularly from uh, up-and-coming filmmakers or unknown filmmakers or international projects. And um, Al Maisel's is, uh, he was a literal documentary legend. We actually, when we were in film school, our directing teacher, Tassos Rogopoulos, showed us Salesman, Al Maisel's first, his kind of like breakthrough documentary from the late 60s. I think my favorite of the big three as well. It's an amazing movie. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I saw that that it opened up. So I just Googled them and saw that they had internship opportunities. I applied for one. I got it. And um, at the end of my internship, they offered me a full-time job basically as the office manager, you know, basically the receptionist. So it was about two years of um, me, Al, the president of the company, and three to five other full-time employees. So it was a really intimate space right up in Harlem on uh, 128th and Lenox, so like really close to the Apollo, right next to Sylvia's across the street from there. And yeah, basically spent almost two years in an office with Al, and it was a lot of... um, just him telling stories. He invited me over to his house a few times for dinner with his wife, who's she's an awesome lady. Um, yeah, it was an amazing experience. It was like my first real film job, too, out of film school. Like, he was, he was one of those guys who, you know, he's famous in the film world, but not worldwide or anything. But he would get a lot of requests from people who wanted to, who, like, found out he was there and would want to come up and visit. And he always took the time. He, like, loved sitting people down at his desk, like off in the corner of the, of the room and anyone like students, film students, a bunch of famous people would stop by or call and pretty much anyone who was interested, he would just sit them down and tell them stories or give them advice or even watch their student films. Like he just was very generous and uh, it was an amazing experience. I really valued it. And the cool thing about Al, he had this one project uh, that he basically called his train project that he had been trying to make for 30 years. Now, this guy made Great Garden Salesman. He made Gimme Shelter, the famous Rolling Stones documentary. So many good things. Worked with Orson Welles and Salvador Dali. And while I was there, we did the Paul McCartney Concert for New York, uh, the movie that was eventually titled The Love We Make, which Al shot right after 9-11 when they did that benefit show at Madison Square Garden. And they sat on the footage for 10 years, and I just happened to be there when they decided to edit it, shoot some more stuff. So that was really cool. But there was this project I always wanted to make for literally decades, since the 80s, um, where he wanted to go on different train routes all over the world, if possible, just meet people on there and then follow them off the train. As the whole conceit was, you know, you meet these people in passing by an act of randomness. Like, what if you got off the train with them and followed them home? 
And I distinctly remember the end of one year, it was like 2011 maybe, me and him for whatever reason just happened to be the last two people in the office and we were closing for the holidays and I was just waiting for him to get ready to go and I was going to walk him because his house was just a few blocks away. And I was like, hey, Al, I just want to say that, you know, this year has been really wonderful. Like, it's been an honor working with you. I've had such a good time. And hopefully next year will be even better. And he just looked at me, like, smiling but kind of sad and said, it'll be a good year if I get to make my train movie. And then shortly after, in 2012, um, I had to leave the job. They had to let go of a few people. They were kind of shutting the doors a little bit, not exactly. And I ended up moving to L.A., Two years later, find out not only did he make another great documentary called Iris, which people should see, about Iris Apfel, the fashion designer, but lo and behold, I hear just randomly on the news an Albert Maisel's documentary called In Transit is coming out to be released. And I want to say six months later, Al had passed away. He was in his mid-80s at that point. Like, I truly believe he held on all those years to make that movie and once he got it in the can he was he was good to go he was at peace like yeah it really felt like that it was um it was crazy but great guy love al everyone should check out all of his movies as many as you can find hopefully one day whoever has the rights to those will release he has so many good shorts from the 60s that uh i was lucky enough to watch while i worked there that people need to see they're just so wonderful like such intimate looks at really great people like Yoko Ono and again Salvador Dali. There's a great one with Orson Welles in Spain. Um, yeah, just an amazing yeah. guy. Yeah, he was super nice to me. I met him a handful of times. The several times that I stopped by the office to see you, and uh, you know, my main memory was telling was him talking to me about Salesman for a little bit because I mentioned that that was my favorite, and I, if I recall, it was his favorite of those yeah. two. I and think it was, yeah. Yeah, so he, super great. So I always think of that, and obviously that time period whenever one of his movies comes up. And yeah, I just thought I'd bring that up since we watched one of his movies tonight. We just, it seemed like something that my fiance would be really into. And it seemed like I was correct. It seems like she was really fascinated by the codependent relationship of these, this mother and daughter. And she's kind of like in love with hoarders and those types of shows. So there's an element of that oh, yeah. to, to this as well. So yeah. yeah, she was fascinated by it and it was great to rewatch it and be reminded of just how powerful their and, and simple their style was. And just that fly on the wall cinema verite, like we're just going to show this to you and present it and you make up your mind about it. And it's very powerful. It's great stuff. They got very, uh, very amazing footage. Yeah, Great Gardens, I feel like, is maybe maybe his most controversial, at least of his major films. Uh, I know a lot of people consider it kind of exploitative. Yeah, I was going to say, you you do kind of wonder. We we had a small discussion about that tonight. She's like, I don't know if we're, if we're supposed to be laughing at this um, yeah. or like if they were making fun of them. But that's where I feel like the like fly-on-the-wall stuff really comes in. Because, one, this is a different time in psychology. I don't feel like we had as much of a grasp on what was actually ailing these two women. And also, and so I feel like they were kind of uneducated in the way they were presenting it. And also, you know, I don't feel like he's judging them. I feel like it's a very warm portrait, actually, at the end of the day. This is the best thing to wear for the day. You understand? Yeah. Because I don't like women in skirts. And the best thing is to wear pantyhose or some pants under a short skirt, I think. Then you have the pants under the skirt. 
And then you can pull the stockings up over the pants underneath the skirt. Mm -hmm. And you can always take off the skirt and use it as a cape. So I think this is the best costume for the day. Okay. <laughs> I have to think these things up, you know. Mother wanted me to come out in a kimono, so we had quite a bite. He actually got his start in the 50s. He filmed some stuff overseas in Russia at these psychiatric, psychiatric wars. Those were his first kind of forays because he was completely self-taught like al used to make his own cameras and everything you know he was a he was a pioneer with the handheld camera that like d.a pennebaker used on primary when he followed jfk around in the 60 primary campaign like al technically was very ingenious in that way i i do know i i don't i would never presume to speak for al Mazels, but while i was working there because i handled the the front desk so i got a lot of calls and you know, a lot. Of, occasionally, you would just get a call from a super fan or a super critic, and there were definitely a couple of people who called and kind of wanted to chastise him because they had just watched Great Gardens, and they were like repulsed by it. And I was told, you know, don't forward the negative ones to Al; it's just going to make him sad. Um, and he took that stuff kind of harsh, harshly, I think, um, because his whole philosophy, his whole life the way I view it and the way the sense I got from knowing him for the couple of years that I did was that his whole goal was to show things as objectively and without comment as possible. You know, he just wanted to, to show the experience, whatever was going on, good or bad, you know? Yeah. And, um, I, I, kn I know personally from talking to him that he didn't have any, I don't think he was ever of the mindset that he was exploiting these women. Like, I don't think that was the case at all. I think he just found them very fascinating and interesting and thought other people would be interested. And at least in that aspect, he was 100% right, because that movie has legs. I mean, it, it got a Broadway show, right? And they made an HBO movie with Drew Barrymore just recently off of a doc that came out, you know, 40-plus years ago. Yeah, and I so. will say, uh, you know, on Filmstruck, they have the supplements that are on the disc as well. And one of the things that we played after the movie wrapped up was an interview with the young, the daughter of the movie. And it's very short. It's her and Al talking very shortly, like a year or two after the movie had come out. And you can tell by the way she's talking about the film and the way that uh, a quick, you know, internet scan of some quotes and some information about them after the, what their lives were like after the movie had filmed that I was kind of looking at. All these quotes I found from them, the actual women who were in the film, were very positive, actually. They were very, ha they were very happy with the film. They had no problem with the way they were depicted. And one of them, the younger one, when asked about her mother after she had died, she said if she, she was asked if she had anything to say about it, and she said, no, it's all there in the film. Like, everything you need to know about us is up there. So I, I think, you know, I think he's okay. I mean, I can certainly see how there's an argument for that and how, you know some people might watch it and feel like it's being exploitative but i think deep down when i'm watching it i can see that there's a good heart behind it all for sure the the thing i think al does did really well and it's similar to what i think frederick wiseman did really well or still does really well he's still making movies as opposed to other documentary filmmakers or reality shows al and and wiseman those guys they don't goad the subjects you know they don't ask them leading questions they don't try to put them in a particular mindset they're just there passively like if they yeah. they won't refuse to 
to discuss with the subjects if if you know like if the women in Grey Gardens start asking Al a question while he's filming, he won't not answer, you know? But yeah. he won't be sitting there watching them in their bedroom and suddenly be like, you know, aren't you mad at your mom for what happened yesterday? Like, he wouldn't do stuff like that. That, I, I think there would be much more of an argument towards the exploitation side of things if he was prone to doing stuff like that, but he really wasn't. Yeah. And, and that's why I think, I think maybe people view it as kind of an exploitation doc in certain ways just because the subject matter is so uncomfortable at points you know it's like really raw yeah well we and should do a whole in parts we should do a whole episode on documentaries and that stuff later down the road especially about wiseman because i know at some point later this year all of his stuff is going to be uploaded onto the canopy app i don't know if you have canopy or can uh, you can get it to it but if you I can... don't yet, but I heard that story and it got me very excited because I own several of his DVDs, but they are very expensive. Yeah, they're hard to find. You have you can only order them really through his website. They're very rare, so it's kind of a treasure trove for film fans to kind of rediscover his work and see stuff that hasn't really been easily available for a long time. So we when that comes out, maybe we can talk about his work and some other documentaries and the forum that way. Absolutely. But, yeah. All right. So moving on, let's talk about the main thing we came to sit down and talk about. Tom, let us talk about A Quiet Place. All right, Tom, the creatures are not listening. They are away, so you can speak up as loudly as you would like to. Tell me, how did you feel about A Quiet Place? I could speak up normally, or I could kind of talk like it's an ASMR video, and I'm so sorry I haven't uploaded in a while, but I want to just open this box. Should I do that? Uh, No, please don't. Okay. So, A Quiet Place, I was very excited for this movie. Um, When I first saw the trailer, I thought, oh, wow, that looks pretty cool. And then the reviews started coming in. And I thought, wait a minute. Okay, we may have, like, a new horror classic on our hands. So, uh, I didn't see it opening weekend. I had made plans. I have a few friends out in L.A. who we all like to get together and watch horror movies when we can. So, we made plans to watch it the Wednesday after opening weekend. So then the opening weekend happened, and it just blows away expectations and made, I think the, the final total was $50 million, right? 52 or 53 I think, somewhere around there. Just, that's a monster opening for A Quiet Place. I mean, that is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I mean, Get Out, as much money as it made, it didn't have an opening like that. I think it just had incredibly long legs. Anyway. Yeah. So... The the expectation was just building and building and building, and I hate when my expectations get too high for a movie. I don't know if that played into this at all. I will say, to summarize, I definitely liked A Quiet Place. I definitely have issues with A Quiet Place. So I'm somewhere in the middle, but I definitely lean towards positive on this that, thing. That's where I'm at. I I think it is a good, solid a strong B movie, you know, like not in, not in like a B movie, like exploitation B movie. I mean like a great grade level B movie. 
Uh, in turn, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's, I think it's the some of the things that are positive about it, like it's short, it's simple, and it's efficient. I think also can hurt it in some ways because it also doesn't dig super deep. It takes some shortcuts, and you know maybe doesn't actually dig into anything quite se- quite too seriously. So, and I also think it is very easy to nitpick the world and the monsters, and I think the way they've set up their life situation. I think it's very easy to nitpick that. I think we're gonna dig into some of that later on because I have some questions for you about their lifestyle. But I, I would say overall, I agree with you. This is a good movie. I don't think it's a great movie. But I also think that I did not have as high expectations as you did. So maybe I'm a little bit more positive than you are. Maybe. So let's let's run down the story. I mean, I feel like most people who are going to see this movie will have seen it by the time this episode drops. But basically, there's a family of five, uh, husband and wife, two boys and a girl. They live in this world where, out of nowhere, for reasons we don't know, these monsters begin to attack the planet and after a certain amount of time and a lot of casualties they figure out how they're able to hunt and it's through sound they have a very acute sense of hearing and they are blind so the way to survive destruction from these monsters is to be as quiet as humanly possible and that's kind of where we start we start with um john krasinski and emily blunt are out scavenging for medication it looks like their oldest son is maybe having a seizure or some type of fit. Yeah, and, uh, he's sick their, somehow. Yeah, their daughter, Reagan, uh, who I, I assume that's a nod to the exorcist, is actually deaf. So this family is well-equipped to live in this world. They all know sign language, presumably because of that daughter's malady. So they, they're at this pharmacy. The little boy, uh, Bo Abbott, finds a, an airplane toy. And I actually really like the scene from beginning to end because they set up in a really cute way why he would be drawn to that particular toy anyway. Like he he talks about he draws a rocket in the dirt and tells his sister in sign language, you know, that's how we're going to get out of here, which I thought was a really cute, heartbreaking moment. They pick up this toy, but it's battery operated. The dad catches it in time, says, you can't take it. It'll be too loud. Takes apart the batteries. They walk away. And the deaf girl gives the airplane back and just says, basically, you know, don't tell mom and dad. The kid, of course, because he's a kid and doesn't know any better, grabs the batteries, and they're walking home along these train tracks. He puts the batteries in, huge noise, and the movie cuts to its opening credits with John Krasinski, the dad, running in vain to save his youngest son before he is snatched away and presumably torn to shreds by these monsters. And so we begin the movie. Good opening. I, I like the opening. Strong opening. Very good opening. You know what I especially liked about this, uh, in a way, kind of removed from the film? That sequence was such a key part of the trailer. So I'm expecting that to be like a major set piece, maybe halfway through the movie or towards the end. Instead, it gives it to us right away. It ends in the worst possible way for the family and in a surprising way for, I think, the audience. You know, the little boy, this cute little boy is dead. So... Anything can happen now. They've just set the rules for this movie right off the bat. We know why these monsters attack, what this family is doing to try and survive, and that nobody is off limits. Like, anybody could die at any point. That's how yeah, I felt. I, I, I like that it was efficient, and it kind of raises the stakes, which I always think is very important in a 
a PG-13 horror film. So now we get to my first of uh, my main issues, I, I should say, are, are plot decisions. Yeah, let's talk. Uh, yeah, let's talk more broadly about like what are some of your you know qualms with the film. Well, my the first part of the movie that made me go like, huh, really? So they cut to the titles after the kid is snatched, and they say something like, 390 days later, we were already 80 days in. So this is about a year and a month since the kid died, and Emily Blunt is eight and a half months pregnant. Yeah. So like three months pass from their child getting murdered into this. They all live in this horrible world with no hope. And they decide, let's just make another one. It reminded me of that Will Ferrell sketch when he's the doctor and he loses the baby. And Chris Parnell goes to Molly Shannon. Let's just make another one. Ew, you're being gross. That whole, you know, remember that? Uh, No, I don't remember that one, unfortunately. Well, it reminded me of that sketch, which isn't a good thing for a super serious horror movie. But anyway, so we move ahead. The daughter and the father kind of have a strained relationship. You can tell the daughter feels guilty and everyone in the family pretty much thinks that the dad blames her for the child's death. Which I think he does, actually, in some ways. Even if he won't acknowledge it. Yeah, I don't think he acknowledges it or doesn't want to think he does, but I think he does. Yes, I think you're right. Which is, I think, another interesting shade. We can talk about, like, I'll agree with you, I think, generally, in that there are some plot mechanic stuff that doesn't work. But I think the, like, the through line emotionally of the film with the family dynamics generally work. I would agree with that. Yeah, I I think the emotions work. Just some of the beats that get them there are a little clumsy. All right, well, yeah, we can talk about it. I don't don't necessarily want to go, like, scene for scene throughout the movie. But, you know, like, let's talk... You know, broadly about some of the things that didn't work or some of the major decisions the movie made. Because I, I, mean, I probably share some of them, but I guess it's going to vary from person to person how much they let these things take them out of the film. Well, you tell me. What do you? Where do you want to start? Well, all right. So I, I enjoyed the film, but I think in terms of the world building, there's some questions in terms. I think what's good is that the film doesn't give you a whole lot. So in terms of their decision to have the children or to have another child, they never have a conversation about that or talk about that or have any real, like, you know, long in-depth character building moments like that, where they kind of talk about their situation. The movie is pretty devoid of that. And it's largely just them living their lives and doing what they have to do quietly. And, Going from there, it's not really a whole lot of plot. Basically, the plot of the movie is they're living their life quietly. They go, everyone kind of leaves the house uh, for various reasons. One night, there's an attack. They all come back, and then they have to survive this attack. So that's really the whole movie. And I kind of like that simplicity about it. But I can see how some of the some things would get in people's way. Like, I know that... I I have a friend who I talked to who did not like at all that the they had like he's like he hated John Krasinski's whiteboard, you know like the the real basic like exposition on the whiteboard that was like yeah. three three monsters. Um, how, he was like, how does he know that? Have they done anything? Like, what do they know about the world? Like, how do they know about these monsters? How does he know that there's three of them? They have no idea like how they're gonna fight them off. Like, well, he says the board says confirmed three. So that they have for sure seen three, but obviously there could be more. Yeah. So, I mean, my my big nitpicks, I suppose, would be I think the solution towards the end about how they end up fighting them off would be something that most anybody would have come up with pretty early on in yes. 
the uh, d- during an attack of a, like a sound based creature. That would seem like one of the first counter strikes actually that they would come up with. So that's one of my first kind of nitpicks about the movie. And the other stuff is kind of I'm torn on. Like, yes, the decision to have a baby is never discussed. But I kind of wish that I would have gotten the sense that they had prepared just a tiny bit more for the baby. Like, I didn't think that one mattress was quite enough to keep all the sound out that they needed to in terms of, like, to have a baby or whatever it is that yeah. they planned on doing well, so, down there. So let's... Uh, but that said, as... I, I will say really quickly, that said, the more I've thought about it, the more I think, man, it would be be really hard to go around and gather things and you can't really nail anything together or screw anything, and, like, you know, so you are limited about what, like, he can build out there. Yeah, you, you see them, you see them sticking, you know, layers and layers of newspaper up against the wall to try to act as some sort of soundproofing. So they're, they're trying all these different methods. I think there's a really clever site, not a gag, but a, a moment where Emily Blunt's character is creating the little what would normally be, you know, like a, a circular chime, rotating chime above a bassinet to calm a baby, but it's made of all these kind of very soft plush birds. Yeah. To not make any noise. I, like, I thought those little details were very nice. Um, I, I Let's just say now, like we do with pretty much every movie we talk about in depth, we're going to get into spoilery stuff. So Yeah, the movie will have been out several weeks by the time this episode's yeah. posted, so hopefully you've had time to see it if you're listening to this. We're going to dig into the ending and talk about the some of the bigger plot twists of the movie yeah. from here on so, from going forward one you're absolutely right about the ending i i kind of mocked the movie afterwards to my friends because like just to spoil the ending right now it's like hey who knew that uh to defeat a creature with an acute sense of sound we would just have to make really loud noises and then a shotgun blast <laughs> that seems kind of that seems like base one of what you would try. Right? Yeah, my my friend was like, uh, you know, you're gonna tell me a, a helicopter couldn't have taken out a few of those guys, you know, really quickly. And I was like, yeah, I know. Like, I, I'll I'll grant that. I would also so there's one issue that just really irked me. What's that? I cu- I kind of couldn't get over it. it. It it wasn't like an issue that took me out of the film or like lessened the movie in any way. So there's a sequence which you know is. Pretty obvious foreshadowing when John Krasinski wants to take his son, the one who got sick in the beginning, who's kind of like a scaredy cat. You kind of get that vibe. He decides to take him hunting to the river where they where he catches fish for the family. The idea is, you know, you're going to have to take care of this family if I'm gone. He's scared. He doesn't want to do it. The, the daughter does. She's much more like proactive and wants to go out and fight. Like you get the sense that that's her vibe. Like, the boy is much more of a mama's boy, and the girl is much more of, like, a, a go-getter, you know? Yeah. Um, but, so, John Krasinski takes his son. They get to a river. Uh, he shows him how they trap fish. Uh, the fish gets away and makes a little noise, and Krasinski calms him down. He's like, look, no, with the streaming river here, we're okay. We can make small sounds. Like, we can talk like we're talking now. And then he takes him to a waterfall. And they just start screaming because they realize, you know, if there's a louder sound to distract us, we're okay here. So my immediate thought was, camp out at the river. Just live there. Yeah, I I actually had that exact thought. That's where your food is. It's like such an adventure just to walk out there. You have to lay down a path of sand or salt or whatever they're using. Yeah. Because even their, their footsteps are dangerous. 
You can just go to a river and have a conversation. <laughs> like he just sits by the river and talks to his son. Just live there, man. Yeah, I mean, I, that's what I mean in terms of the setup of the world. Like the the way they've decided to live their life is, I think, where the film, the plot holes are kind of the most questionable. Because you can, my, one of my first thoughts is like, man, I really wouldn't want to live in an old creaky farmhouse. I might want to, you know, find somewhere else that isn't quite as uh, noise producing or as quite as secluded. But so I think that stuff is, is questionable. And I think, you know, stuff like the decision to have a baby is very questionable. And there's things like that. But I also think that the film does work sort of as a metaphor for the way parents will set up all these ways to protect their children from the outside, the monsters of the outside world and how you, they try to train them and they'll do anything to protect them. And how as a parent, there is this urge to protect your children. And Emily Blunt has a really good scene where she talks about how, like what kind of parents are they if they can't protect their children? And I, I think all that stuff really works. And I think it works as a metaphor about, you know, you're, the way you have to eventually let your children go or sacrifice yourself for your children, but eventually they're going to have to take care of themselves. And I liked all that. I thought all that really worked, and it works yeah. in, in that metaphor way way better than it does in a literal, like, man, if that was me, I don't think that's the way I'd live my life in that world. I think you're right. And not only does she say – she doesn't even say what kind of parents are we. She says, what are we? Like the all-encompassing, this is our purpose in life now. You know, we, we don't – we don't exist together for any other reason than to make sure our kids are okay. Right. Like that is the, that is the it. So I think you're absolutely right with that. And um, yeah, I think the, the, the realities of the story can get kind of clunky, but the message, like I see the intent of the story, like the line and the arc throughout, and it does work. Even the ending which is kind of silly when you realize how to defeat the monster, but the idea of it being the girl who has been wanting to help, wanting to save, wanting to fight, and she's the one to do it after her dad is gone and not there to protect them anymore. Like, it it does work in this circular way that is, it is definitely satisfying, I thought. So I want to talk about John Krasinski uh, in all the different iterations of him on this project. I think mm-hmm. one of the reasons I didn't have very high expectations is because I don't think of John Krasinski as a great director. He's directed a couple of movies before, but neither of them were received very warmly. And that was kind of what kept my expectations low. And I think I do think the film is lacking, especially in terms of camera work. I think if there was somebody who, like a James Wan or somebody who's a bit more technical with something like a Steadicam, they would have a bit more fun with some of these sequences in terms of spreading out the suspense or shooting it in a more bit more fun, a bit more playful way than Krasinski. Krasinski's very kind of basic here. He's kind of just giving you the information. He doesn't have much of a style yet. So I, I think that's a knock against film. But I do think he gives a, 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 a an okay decent warm performance i thought he was good in the film he didn't distract me at all i didn't i wasn't thinking about jim or the office the entire time when i was watching the movie but i will say emily blunt is definitely the better of the two of them here yeah acting wise i really have no issues um across the board i thought everyone was was solid to very good emily blunt's great 
I and they're mostly the signing at each other. You know, there's not a lot of dialogue in this movie. Yeah, but I, th- I think they, they all did a good job. I thought the daughter was great. I, I don't know. I give him a little more credit as a director on this than you probably. Like, the, it's nothing. I'm talking not, mostly visually, I guess. Not really well, so that, much. I, that's, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I, nothing kind of stood out as like, wow, that was a really impressive sequence or that was a great long take or anything. Or, like, you know, there's nothing necessarily about the colors that are really bold and stick out in an interesting way. But I, w- I would go slightly above, like, the serviceable label, I think. He used his direction and the editing in a way that I thought was mostly successful. Like, there are a couple of sequences, especially the, the water-breaking pregnancy firework sequence, which is just this sustained, like, 10 to 15-minute thing. That I yeah. thought was really well done all across the board. Like in every technical way, acting, suspense. It, I thought that was just an excellent sequence. Like all the way leading up to her stepping on the nail, which a friend I saw the movie with literally screamed in the theater when she stepped on the nail. She had like her knees in her mouth, just so anxious, and let out a scream in this silent theater. And it made me so fucking happy. (laughs) Yeah, it's like my favorite thing that happened that whole day was that. That's one of the best things that horror films or suspense films can do is when they when they're kind of setting the the foundation for the later half of the movie, and they're kind of like laying the bricks, you know, that you're they're gonna they're gonna use later. And you can see something that's so obvious, like the nail thing when the nail pops out of the board. That's obviously something that the audience knows. Like, well, that's gonna come back later. But you just know that, and when it finally happens, you're just dreading it so much. You're like, oh, this would fucking suck if it happened to me. It's so kind of, it's one of those horrible things that's relatable because we can all imagine it happening to us one day. And that, in terms of his direction, I mean, he's not subtle about it or anything. But, you know, it's that Hitchcockian tactic of you let the audience in on something that the character doesn't know yet. So the suspense of just knowing it's going to happen and waiting and knowing once it happens, things are going to go from bad to worse for the character. It's a it's a good suspense tool, and I thought he utilized that well. And things like the uh, the final kind of big action set piece where he has to go rescue his kids, and they run into the car, which that whole thing felt like a huge homage to Jurassic Park. Like first, they're being like smashed by this monster on this big like i think it's like a wood panel which reminded me of the crushed jeep in jurassic park with the two kids in the 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 first jurassic park movie and then obviously they're in like a pickup truck being terrorized that whole thing just reminded me of that movie for whatever reason but with john krasinski having to say his emotional goodbye to his daughter and putting closure on that moment that like kind of unspoken for the most part tension that had been there throughout the movie i thought that was really well done um, it's definitely a satisfying movie. The the one thing I will say for a movie that's so, like, its whole conceit, the reason why it would be, you know, a quote-unquote high-concept horror movie is the sound thing or the lack of sound. And one thing that kind of surprised me is they don't really, like, it's a major plot issue and it forces them to be quiet whenever some, like, unexpected noise happens. You know, it's kind of terrifying for a moment for the characters and the audience tenses up, but they didn't really play with it in like an aesthetic or creative way other than what the story demanded, which is fine. But I was a little surprised by that. Yeah. And well, okay. So we'll use this 
I'll talk a little bit about this, but I think we wanted to talk about the way sound is generally used in horror films uh, for the second part of this uh, conversation. So I'll start talking about one of my, when I say that John Krasinski didn't really direct a scene that kind of stood out to me or a sequence where you feel like that that is being utilized, like the use of sound. Like a scene that I would kind of use in comparison is something like imagine the kitchen scene in Jurassic Park where they're, you know, hiding from the raptors. You know, you would expect there to be some kind of scene where, like, the kids have to creep around the room and not make one single sound while the monsters slowly pace around or something like that. And there has to be, like, some creative way they get through the room without making a sound. Like, something like that. But there's not really a whole lot of that going on. It's not really about suspense. And for a movie that is very quiet and dialogue-free, it's also very loud, you know, because the score is very prevalent throughout. It's kind of, you know, there's loud shrieks when there's jump scares. So it is also a a loud movie for how dialogue free it is. Yeah. There, there's also, there is that one moment again, it's kind of at the tail end of that pregnancy sequence, I believe where Emily Blunt is forced back downstairs and she's kind of being hunted and she's forced to be super quiet and watch her breathing. There oh yeah. Is that one that, that is, yeah. That's true. But I guess it wasn't done in any, I guess it didn't stand out to me, I guess. So, right. I mean, but, you know, I do that stretch of the movie is the strongest stretch. So I'll agree that and that is like several scenes kind of stacking up on each other, like you said, like with the fireworks and the everything else that's going on. So that's the most that's the most creative use of the sound is actually not trying to be silent and afraid of any like creak in a floorboard, but actually overusing sound as a tactic to distract the monsters to let like they basically John Krasinski basically has his son run far away from the house and set off a bunch of fireworks to distract the monster that's in the house attacking the mother, Emily Blunt, and her water is broken. She is in incredible pain. And once the fireworks are going off and distracting him, she lets out this wail in the tub, even though you know there's a monster close by. And I thought that was a really effective use, not of the lack of sound, but of overusing sound to lay over other uses of sound. I thought that part was actually um, easily the most creative usage of like sound or lack thereof in the movie all right well another movie that speaking of lack of creative use of sound that you asked me to watch in comparison to a quiet place was hush Yeah, Mike Flanagan directed it. The film is about a writer who is working on her novel in a in her house kind of out in the woods. And she is also deaf, so that's another film that uses sign language. And she is tormented throughout the film by a masked and very soon thereafter unmasked killer who taunts her throughout the rest of the movie. And that's another film that I think would want you to believe it is going to use sound or the, the fact that she can't hear him for some very important thing, but I don't think it ever actually becomes an issue in the movie. Uh, Like I'm not entirely sure why she's deaf or what they really wanted to do with it. We can talk a little bit more broadly about hush, but you know, like I wish that there was a little bit more, there's very few horror directors out there right now. Even though there are some good horror films obviously being made every year, there's even some great ones. 
I feel like there's a for the number of horror films that are coming out here. I I don't feel like there's anyone who's doing great, great, great work with sound right now. Well, first off, I completely disagree with you about Hush. Hush, dude, I give Hush an F. I hated Hush. Are you serious? I hated Hush. I hated Hush about 15 minutes in. I was like, I'm basically done with this movie. And then that just proceeded. I hated the rest of it from there. That's insane to me. I mean, it's a smaller movie, but an F? It was so just generic and boring. And I the plot doesn't make a lick of sense. And... I just thought the ending was silly and it was cause completely devoid of suspense. Uh, All right, no. we're going to, we're going to go to battle here right now. So first off your initial statement about them not doing anything creative with sound and that her being deaf served no purpose is, is just wrong. And I'll tell you why. Okay. So once again, spoilers for hush hush is about, yeah, this writer, she had a meningitis attack when she was 13. She is now deaf and mute. She lives alone in this, like, cabin-in-the-woods type place working on her second novel. She has a neighbor, um, another woman who they're friendly with, and that woman, that neighbor, has a boyfriend who is on his way back to the cabin but hasn't arrived at the time the film starts, right? So the deaf lady uh, is cooking, and she's in the kitchen. The, The friend comes by, drops the book off. They talk. She leaves. Suddenly, this the deaf lady's in the kitchen, it's nighttime, and the neighbor comes running into the glass door that connects to the kitchen. But our deaf protagonist has her back turned, and she cannot hear her. Meanwhile, this woman is being knifed to death repeatedly, screaming for help. She's unable to get help. She would have been able to if that woman was not deaf. So there's okay. point one. There's one there's scene. One. I'm talking about like no, more. There's generally... more than one scene. There's okay. more than one scene. Okay. I don't want to like. I don't really want to do like a, a 40 minute argument about hush because uh, no, I mean, we're not just. I let just me, okay. Let me get this out. I want to explain okay. why okay. you're wrong. Okay. Well, I'm so, not because it's you're not a good. I mean, you're definitely wrong about it being an F. That's insane. You cannot like it. Okay. I, I, I did not like it. I would give it a C minus okay. if I was on it being a very nice. So well, the other big moment. So two people die besides the main besides the villain in the movie. It's this girl who I just explained how she dies and her boyfriend, which I thought was one of the best scenes in the movie. He shows up. He shows up at our deaf lady's house and because he's looking for his girlfriend, the killer who has been just stalking and toying with our hero uh, approaches the guy and pretends to be a cop. Right. And there's this, I, I thought, really good moment of back and forth where they're kind of playing psychological warfare with each other, these two men. The boyfriend kind of starts to pick up on the fact that this guy isn't a cop like he says he is. He's starting to grow suspicious. This boyfriend is also very large and muscular and could take this guy in a fight, a thing that the villain eventually acknowledges. The reason why the killer gets the upper hand is because this deaf woman, who is unable to hear noises, produces a noise that distracts the boyfriend and gets him killed. It is exactly because of her use of noise that the the villain in the movie gets the upper hand again and fucks her and puts her back in a weaker position. I'm he, saying the boyfriend was on his way and her like the inverse of her malady is what forces that boyfriend to die. The two the reason why the two other characters in the movie die are directly related to her deafness. Yeah, that's great. I'm not saying that the film doesn't ever acknowledge that she's deaf or do anything that 
like means that, that she does because she's deaf. I'm saying that the film doesn't do anything remotely scary or make any scene scarier because she's deaf or do anything creative with the sound. Like, yeah, it's worked into the plot, sure. But I didn't feel like the director did anything that like made me be like, oh my God, that's, that's what it would be like to be in a deaf person's shoes and not be able to like know what's going on around me or whatever. That's what I mean when I say it didn't do anything with sound. Well, I, I would say that I wish uh, Flanagan spent more time in her brain where she can't hear anything. Like I wish we had more perspective of her walking around the house and not being able to hear anything. I think that would have been really creepy. But there are also moments where she's sitting in the living room couch and the killer just opens up the side door and is just standing behind her for several minutes. Here's why I didn't like the movie. And this goes back to something we kind of talked about when we were talking about The Strangers and I kind of mentioned Halloween. Like, this is a peekaboo movie. This is a movie that is solely about a guy who's just going to torment this woman for reasons completely unknown. The, the movie is about, okay, he kills the neighbor for... Why? We don't know. So, who cares? So then he literally sees this woman, sees that she's deaf, like, taps on the window and is like, huh, she can't hear anything. And then it's just like, I guess I'm going to fuck with her for a couple hours. Like, and then just decides to, like, destroy his life and, like, her life. And, like, and then he, like, literally goes up to her, like, after 10 minutes. And he's like, I'm not going to come in. I'm just going to fucking circle your house for a while and make it your life harder. And I'm kind of just like, why? Like, I don't understand why he's doing any of this. And I guess, like, you can say it's, like, whatever. But I don't like the horror genre enough to, like, care enough about this really, really basic genre exercise like this movie didn't do anything that i haven't seen 15 minute short horror films do like on youtube for years now like i thought it was like a woman screaming and crying the power gets shut off she can't make phone calls so she has to come up with a few ways to get out of the house and i immediately thought 15 minutes into the movie i was like oh i bet the boyfriend shows up and he gets killed for some reason and so like you you talking about like the psychological aspects of those scenes like sure but for me, this was such a predictable, by-the-numbers, like, boring horror film. I just was so bored by it. And I didn't think the direction was anything special. I, th- I didn't think the plot was anything special. I thought the mask was cool. But then, like, 20 minutes into the movie, he took it off. And then, like, that completely neutered him. I was like, okay, so it's just this guy with a beard. Like, Yeah, he, I, I'll and, agree with that. I, I really liked the mask. And when he took it off, I thought, oh, this is just kind of some, like, Chad bro. This is kind of a bummer. I guess, and then, like, the ending with her, like, coming up with, like, seven different ways to get out of the situation. And, like, I just didn't like, I just did not find any of it very, very enticing. I was really, really, really bored by it. And I guess I was hoping for a lot more creative use of sound, like, in, the, in, a, in terms of a stylish way, not in terms of the plot. So I really, really did not like Hush. I can tell. I think you're crazy. I, I don't think it's amazing. Um, it's definitely you called it uh, a horror exercise. That's totally what it is. So yeah, but I don't like horror the way you do. So right, that, right. So I'm yeah. saying it's fair. It's fair to be bored by that because that is really what it's about. I mean, it's definitely a horror movie for horror fans, in my opinion. Uh, but I don't know. It's weird to me that you're so anti this movie and so generally positive on a quiet place, especially because. One of your big issues is we don't understand his reasonings, which we get a clue uh, at some point in the movie. She grabs a hold of his weapon of choice, which is a bow and arrow, and you see these uh, check marks on it, which presumably are the number of people he killed. So basically, he's just a killer for sport. He's just a psychopath. For me, 
for me, I'll go with flesh-eating monsters are a lot easier to buy as generic villains who like eat, who just like prey on people for no reasons than it is that this guy just like literally just wanders by her house and decides he's going to fuck with her for the rest of the night. And I think the difference believable between a, in what way, like as an entertaining movie, or you're you're more yeah, likely to believe I, that would happen. I, I I need more. I guess I would like some more motivation. Out of, from somebody, from so, from something. I would like to know, like, that there is a reason that why he killed the neighbor, and then he just like stumbled into this. Or like, I would have liked to her to have seen him, and he felt like he had to stop her. But he literally like finds out that she didn't find out anything, or see, or hear anything, and then he decides to fuck with her. So I was kind but of. You just also like, love Halloween, which is classically motiveless from its villain. I don't know. This movie's not Halloween, and. No, there's, it's not. There, but would you not? Would you not like Halloween if you had watched it not knowing anything about it? Is that what I, you're saying? I think there's a difference between one. Michael Myers is actually creepy. Uh, you actually have a score. You have you know things like the opening with the point of view and the camera being used in an interesting way with the steady cam. Like Carpenter's just a better director. And I would also say that the difference between something like this and a Quiet Place. The, the reason I will prefer something like A Quiet Place is because, like we talked about, the emotional through line is very consistent. So even though there's plot mechanic things that bother me, like I can get past it because I like the characters, I like the cast, I like the little girl, and I thought like the, the family dynamics were all interesting as well as I found several stretches of the film to be suspenseful. And, and I also thought that the world was a bit more... like I thought the monsters were a little unique. I thought the whole thing was just a bit more interesting and well done, whereas I felt Hush, like I said, was just a really basic... It would be like if I made a Western that was about, you know, a gunslinger coming to town to protect the town from some evil cowboy. You'd be like, oh, well, I've seen this a hundred times. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's called High Plains Drifter, and it's one of my favorite Westerns ever. Yeah, but High Plains Drifter also subverts that. I'm talking about, like, if I did it in the, like, high noon-ish, you know classic john ford way or something like that you'd be like oh this is boring like i would point to something like a history of violence or something like that or not a history of violence i'm sorry in the valley of violence the ty west film from a year or two ago like as just being a very very boring by the numbers western that like was just doing nothing original I i i actually didn't find that boring i thought it was pretty entertaining but anyway so I will say I actually think I prefer Hush over A Quiet Place. Crazy talk. That's insane to me. The reason why is I think ultimately I think they're very similar in terms of craft and execution. What I think I prefer about A Quiet and I'm not maybe I don't just necessarily mean as a singular experience, but I'm more likely to put on Hush again. And I think the reason why is Hush tackles Hush puts you in that position in a more believable and thought out way than a quiet place does. Like what I was saying about why don't they just go live by the river in a quiet place, right? There, the movie is kind of filled with moments like that where, you know, the kind of cliche, not the smartest character beat that happens a lot in horror movies. Like don't run up those stairs, all that shit. What Hush does well, I think, is it really it goes after every possible route, you know, and it's even a, it's even a, a character point. Like she's a writer who has, at one point she's trying to work on her novel and she goes to her pages app and has seven different endings for her next book. And she's trying to figure out the next one. And then at the end of 
the actual movie, she's trying to figure out, okay, if I run out, what's going to happen? He's going to stab me because I'm wounded and weak. If I go hide under there, he's going to find me. If I go hide up in my bedroom, even if he doesn't catch me, I'm going to bleed out because I'm already injured. She, like, tackles every possible situation. And for me, as a, as a real horror fan, that's the type of shit that goes on in my brain when I'm watching these movies. Like, what would I do? And I think Hush handles that very well from clearly from a horror filmmaking team, writer and directing team that knows the genre and is trying to work within it. Yeah, it's not subverting anything. Um, I definitely think it could have done more with the deaf aspect and made it more um, aesthetically unique uh, with its sound or its lack of sound. But I think it does touch on it in interesting ways, like the two deaths I talked about or at the end with her super loud, vibrating fire alarm where she basically blinds him. So we have a blind, temporarily blind guy working against a deaf guy, but she's able to use this shriekingly loud, like pulsating light alarm to disorient him in a way and get the upper hand using basically her own disability um, against this guy. So I think they use it in clever ways. I would have liked, I, I still think there needs to be a movie that, is super scary where you just don't hear what's going on around you and you're constantly surprised by things. I think there's there's still a movie to be made that hasn't been made yet, A Quiet Place and Hush didn't do it, um, where you're really focused on like what would it be like to be completely deaf in a situation like that. Hush does it a little bit, but not enough. So I will agree with you there, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'll be over here watching Wait Until Dark. Well, I was going to say, we could also do a uh, Wait Until Dark and... Uh, don't breathe double feature yeah like don't breathe i I would take don't breathe over hush any day of the week too i would i would agree with that yeah like i and and don't breathe is another one that i would watch and say i wish he had tried a little bit more fun stuff with the camera like i think that's especially a story where you could have really gone nuts in the house but you know like i think that's a very fun well-executed well-paced one and like I'll grant Hush that it's like eighty five minutes. It was a quick watch, thankfully. Like it wasn't. It didn't drag anything out for too long. But I and I and I do like the the central woman at the center. She was good. I just really thought the villain was really weak sauce and just kind of just silly. I, I was kind of laughing at him. You're literally and, the first person I've ever talked to who hated Hush. Ever. Oh man, I've well, never heard that from another person. Oh well, I'm glad to meet you, man. <laughs> well, I want to hear uh, anyone who listens to this. Phil will give out our Twitter information at the end of the episode. Tell us if you like Hush or not, because I think I'm in the right here. Uh, neither A Quiet Place nor Hush nor Don't Breathe is a masterpiece. Wait until dark is, but I'd like to hear what other people think. Do you want to talk about uh, generally what we like and don't like in sound and horror movies? Well, I I mean, I re- like, like you, I wish there was creative use i think really some of the last stuff that was really being done creatively was oh i don't want to i don't want to say anything too hugely broad like that but i'm trying to think of some interesting examples i remember really liking m night Shyamalan for a while there like he was getting really good with sound yeah i agree his earlier stuff is fantastic yeah and and i'm talking in terms like sound design and i feel like one of the biggest mistakes that most modern horror films make is this tendency for loudness and shrieking violins i think that's probably the most cliched aggravating thing Uh, i personally would i i often find something that's a bit quieter and calmer or more remote to be more disturbing like that's why someone like michael hanukkah or hanukkah is more disturbing in a way is because he'll just present something kind of 
this God's eye view or something, this third person perspective of this horrifying thing and just kind of doesn't give you the cut to kind of hide you or to, to give you a distance from the horror or the gore. And I wish more horror movies would kind of let that attitude sink in a little bit. Like the opening of it from last year, I remember people were talking about how scary it was. And I just, I don't know, like I, the way I pictured that scene when I read the book was much more quick and visceral and just him ripping Georgie's arm off. So when the movie happened, it's this like loud score that comes banging on and this huge CGI clown that comes crawling out of the sewer. Like for me, it was too big and that like loudness stops being scary. So I wish some films would kind of take a, you know, turn the volume down a little bit. Yeah. We, I, I spoke briefly a couple episodes ago about the sequel to the strangers. And one thing I think they do really well is not use like piercing loud sound effects for their jump scares. They they'll have moments where you'll be in a long take and suddenly you'll realize that one of the killers is like standing off in the distance in a field watching them. And when the camera finally focuses on them, most modern directors would do some type of piercing squealing sound effect to add to it, to like really draw your attention be like, "Hey, don't miss this moment." And that movie didn't, and I really appreciated that because I want to. I just want to say, like, jump scares in a vacuum are not inherently bad. Jump scares can be very, very effective and scary. Yeah. the pro- The problem is, especially in modern movies, is most studios feel the need to accentuate a jump scare with a really piercingly loud sound effect, and what that does is it takes the scare away and just kind of like recoils your heart for a split second because you're physically uncomfortable by the experience. Like it is, it's never pleasant to just hear a very loud sound effect when you're not a very loud noise when you're not expecting it, you know? And you, you, they try to give you this like Pavlovian response from the sound effect to the scary thing you just saw jump out at you. And they think that's what makes it scary. It's not, that just gets a reaction, but that's not scary. Like Roman Polanski back in, you know, the Rosemary's Baby repulsion days, was very good at using jump scares without any sound effects or just something very quiet. Like, there's a great moment in repulsion where she's freaking out and she's, like, rummaging through her closet and the closet has a mirror in front of it and she shuts the door and reflected in the mirror in the background, you just see this, like, impish man there. And there's no sound effect to it all. It's a classic jump scare idea, but there's no sound. So you kind of realize it at your own pace, and that's so much more terrifying. Or in Rosemary's Baby, there's that one moment towards the end where... The phone booth? The phone booth is a good example, yeah. But there's another moment where a character just, like, runs across frame. Like, almost like a weird little jaunt across frame towards the end of the movie. And it's so weird and spooky and comes out of nowhere... And it's really scary. Or like Exorcist 3, there's the classic nurse with the shears uh, jump scare in the hospital. And they don't really, they use some sound, but not in like an overly loud piercing way. They actually use a camera trick to go to like this really fast, sudden zoom. And that is so much more terrifying to me, you know? And that's like sometimes the lack of sound is, is really, really good in a horror movie. Yeah, you know, I think about. Well, I'm some scenes that I'm thinking about. I'm trying to remember if they're quiet in the movie or, or if they're loud, and they're, I'm just remembering them as quiet. Because you think about a scene like 
the twins in The Shining, when Danny turns the corner, there is that, like, cymbal crash, you know, of, like, but, like, what makes that scene scary is, like, the the humming. You know, it's not like loud, it's not like loud psycho shrieks. It's like this, it's this, like, hum that's kind of roaring underneath the soundtrack while you hear these girls, and the stillness of it is what's so scary. It's not the frantic, like, chaotic nature with, like, loud shrieks. It's, It's how calm and how still and how... Uh, symmetrical those two girls are and also little girls or little children are freakishly scary for some reason in movies I don't know why but they can be if used properly and that's the type of stuff that I wish was being used more that kind of like willingness to just hold on an image and let it speak for itself and let the dread grow and there's been some great stuff I'm not I don't want to say that there hasn't been great horror films obviously that's a mini horror renaissance that's gone on the last 10 years or so yeah like get out you know one of the best ones recently it doesn't rely on those piercingly loud sound effects or anything like that uh, speaking of um, Ty West the director of that western you just mentioned he's I think he's really good at avoiding those cliche sound effects in movies like the innkeepers and house of the devil I think those are both two great modern examples of like someone who's willing to use quiet and dread in effective ways. Yeah, for sure. There's also, you know, sound can also happen in the score of a movie. And I think there are, I I thought about two different examples that use their score in very different ways, but to equally effective results in their own way. The first one, we talked about the movie a little bit, but John Carpenter's Halloween score do you remember in film school when people laughed at Halloween? Yeah, we, we showed don't it in class. talk about that because people are stupid. Well, the reason I bring it up actually is I actually remember what they laughed about is when she pulls the car up to the the thing at the the gate at the front of the movie. When he jumps over the car, there's that like loud keyboard like thing that like happens, <laughs> and it's like a it's some weird synth noise that happens, and I think that keyboard sound is what made people laugh, actually. So it wasn't like a loud shrieking violin, but it was a loud John Carpenter synth that I think right. people thought were a little dated, you know, on the movie. But he also, you know, especially towards the end, the climax of the movie, his score is prevalent throughout, but it's not overbearing or anything. It's mostly just boom, 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 you know? Oh, yeah. Like, I, hey, it, I wasn't laughing in that classroom, buddy. I was, I was appalled along with you. When he's attacking Laurie Strode in the closet, you know, the the score is very minimal and what you really hear is her screaming and the him trying to break through the the shades of the closet or whatever. Or at the end when she thinks he's dead and he's lying in the background of the frame and you just hear the him get up and it's completely silent. Like you don't even hear his clothes ruffling or anything like that. And I remember going I remember seeing that movie in theaters a few years ago out here. Uh, some random October, and when he stood up, there were clearly several people who had never seen that movie before who were watching it for the first time in theaters, and they lost their shit. And it was so great because it doesn't draw attention to it. You know, it's one of those things where, like, you just have to be watching, and especially when a, when a film is able to hold on to an image like that. I mean, that type of moment is now so cliche because of movies like Halloween that you're expecting it. But I can only imagine seeing something like that for the first time and him just randomly sitting up like the undertaker in a wrestling match or something. And you just, it like, it kind of just throws your mind for a loop because you're sitting there getting used to some image and then something completely different happens. And now the stakes have changed dramatically, you know? Yeah. There's this new thing that's kind of happening right now with it's where composers have kind of become 
a, another version of a sound designer on a film because I personally, mostly probably being a huge Paul Thomas Anderson nerd, have given credit to him and Punch Drunk Love for this. But I've noticed that a lot of people have started to use kind of industrial sounds or really abstract noises, like, you know, something strange or uncomfortable, like a hammer banging on a ladder or something like that. And they'll just bang on a ladder over and over again. And they'll just kind of have that banging over a scene. And they'll be using that kind of loud uncomfortableness really to make the audience uncomfortable, even if the image on screen isn't doing that. I've noticed a lot more of that in like art films. So like something like Under the Skin, you know, has a lot of tension and creepiness almost entirely from, from the Mika Levy score. So yeah. that's that's another element that people have used to make films scary, or even something we, like "There Will Be Blood" has like a horror movie score. Yeah, we saw it in Thoroughbreds, also. Yeah, another. Yeah, that was a recent one that definitely used its score to amp up the dread and atmosphere of the film. Yeah, "There Will Be Blood" actually, I, I think, has is hugely influenced by the score to The Shining. Yeah, yeah, he's he's. I remember he gave an interview like right before he went into production. And he was talking about how he was listening to Pandarecki and The Shining a lot. And obviously, like, David Lynch in Eraserhead uses that a lot. The uh, industrial sounds of blue-collar, machined city uh, Philadelphia yeah, that... going on all around him, like when he's walking to work and stuff like that. Uh, actually, speaking of PTA and Johnny Greenwood, his new score for the amazing Lynn Ramsey movie, You Were Never Really Here, does that so much and so well to a point especially there's one point i won't spoil anything because i know you haven't watched it yet but towards the end there's a series of sounds that just sound like what's going on in the location i mean to the point where i'm like oh that's in the house and then you realize that it is just completely the score it is not a diegetic noise at all and it utilizes that in a really uncomfortably good way yeah, yeah, that's, I can't wait. It's probably got another week or two till it's here, so I'm, I'll see that as soon as I can. But then you also have the inverse of music scores, and an example that I personally love to death is Goblin score for Suspiria. Yeah, yeah, that's a very big score. It is so big and so overpowering, and just the combination of that with the loud, colorful images, it's everything about it is just so bombastic. I've always loved that movie. They just did a 4K restoration of it, and I was lucky enough to go see it in theaters at the Egyptian out here last October. And seeing that thing fresh in like the best possible mix and color imaginable, it was truly overwhelming, but overwhelming in a really, really good way. That is like, that is some psychedelic, ear bleeding, batshit craziness in, in the best way possible. Not a lot of movies can pull off as loud and obscene as that movie is going for, but Suspiria pulls it off. Yeah, and, and just you know, to outside of the horror genre, I can think of especially heist films that like use a complete drop of sound and pure silence to amp up suspense. So, you know, some one of the biggest examples probably of my entire life was when I was ten years old and saw Mission Impossible, the first one in theaters that break into Langley sequence during the, you know, where he has to stay completely quiet in the vault is an incredible sequence. And it's so suspenseful because you're holding your breath and you feel like you can't make a noise. And it's great when a film can do that. And there's also other great examples like Rafifi or Lesser Carbouge has a great silent stretch where they're doing a heist. And yeah, it's just silence can be so effective when used. No Country for Old Men is a great non-horror example of just long stretches of just seeing characters' actions and watching, like, 
this oh my god the sequence where Chigger comes to see him at the hotel and he's kind of you know switching rooms and people are taking off boots to like not make sounds and it's all it's all visually told and it's wonderful and I anytime filmmakers can do that I will be happy and I would love to see more of that in the horror genre yeah Brick uh, Ryan Johnson's movie Brick has that great sequence where there's a foot chase that's a great yeah it's a great foot chase with the yeah he the, takes the loud he clacking. takes the shoes off yeah yeah. You hear the clacking of the shoes, and he takes it off to get the soft feet and is able to one-up his chaser. Sound is just awesome, and they're really, especially in genre films, they're really effective ways to utilize it. Like, in Psycho, maybe is to blame for all the shrieking sound effects we get nowadays. I don't know. But that shower scene, I think, is still very effective, particularly for that movie, because up until that shower scene, you don't know you're watching a horror movie. You know, like without any context of what Psycho is and its legacy, obviously. But that movie feels like a type of noir drama until you get to the Bates Motel and Janet Leigh is murdered in that shower. And then suddenly the sound goes from kind of very simplistic, old school Hollywood. It's got the the noir score as she's driving away with the $40,000. Then you get to that shower scene and it's just shrieking over and over again and like shit just goes bananas and you're suddenly watching a completely different movie and it's memorable for that reason or like john williams jaws score it's very similar to carpenter's halloween score it's very simplistic but it sets a tone in a very good way that isn't overbearing at all but just ratchets up tension in a beautiful way all right you know wrapping up this week is there anything you wanted to throw out there talk about recommend complain about what what have you I want to say uh, go Celtics tomorrow. I, I hope we win. I also wanted to say Milos Forman passed away today. Oh, we yeah, should, yeah. Uh, We should rep him a little bit. He's a great filmmaker. He did Amadeus. He did Man on the Moon. He did One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. The People, People versus, versus Larry Flint. Flint. Fireman's Ball. Yeah, he's a great, great director. Sad to hear that he had passed away. Yeah, great director. I grew up watching many of his movies. Didn't even realize he's one of those directors that you don't realize how big of a fan you are until you actually like kind of realize all the movies he's done that you love. He's um yeah, if if you haven't seen some of his lesser known stuff or if you've never, you know, Amadeus, something like that could I think easily be one of those movies that people just never got around to cuz maybe you feel like you know it or you don't need to see it. It that movie's so good. If you haven't watched Amadeus, go designate three hours of your time some weekend and just sit down and watch that thing from beginning to end. You will not be disappointed. It is so good. It is as good as biopics. He was kind of the king of the biopic. Yeah. I love, uh, people versus Larry Flint. I think that's great. People versus Larry Flint. I also, and man, man on, on the, the moon. moon. Yeah, I know you love, you love man on the moon. Yeah. I love that movie. He also did, um, another one that, uh, one of his last movies, Goya's ghosts. Oh yeah. The yeah, painter. Yeah. I wouldn't put it up there with those other ones, but totally worthwhile. Really interesting film. So rest in peace, Milos. Another game for Milos. We will miss you, my friend. I Yes, I will definitely miss him. I look forward to watching some more of his films when I can. Because I have not seen... I, I have hair, but I have not watched it, actually. I own the Blu-ray of it. Yeah, I've never seen it either. So maybe I'll do that. Yeah. So, all right. Um, for my little recommendation... I have a very simple one, but I've been using it a lot this week, so I'm going to share it with you. It is the Overdrive app, and all it is is your local library. 
oh my God, what a crazy idea. I am someone who has a ton of books that I want to read and a ton of audio books that I want to listen to because, you know, sometimes I run a podcast, so it's like, oh, there's got to be something I can listen to. And I have recently been using it a lot to check out books and audio books. And it's because they stack up and I'm sometimes a cheapskate and I'm like, I don't want to buy all these books, you know, but it's great. I sometimes forget like, oh, yeah, you can rent them from the library for free. So it's been a great way for me recently to get my books and audiobooks. So I've been do I've been stacking up my queue lately. So I you know, I'd recommend everybody use their local libraries. My fiance is a librarian, so I feel like I'm maybe repping this for her too. But go use your library resources more. That's So that's how do, how does it work? You just kind of overdrive as a place to reserve them and then you go pick them up or it's a no, free No, like it's a it's free like, like a free ebook. ebook. Yeah, it's like an ebook app for your library. So if you get your library card, you put in your library information and then like you can check out books so you can read the book on your you know whatever device you're using or you can download the audio files and they're like temporary you know two-week audio files that last so and then you can listen to the whole book or whatever so it's just like fantastic yeah it's just like free free books you know you don't have to go to the library except like sign up for a library card but it's you know free cheap nice yeah i I gotta do that um how do you read your ebooks you just do it on your phone yeah, I do it on my phone. I mean, I, you can also, you know, put it on your computer or, you know, if you have an iPad or anything like that. Yeah. I don't know. The the Apple products, I haven't been able – I can't read on them well. I have a Kindle, which I think is really good because it has the, the backlight as opposed to the, the front light that – like, I can't, I can't read on my iPad outside. You know, the glare is, is too bad. Yeah, maybe well, I just have older versions of it. Maybe they've updated it. But like the Kindle's great outdoors, but I don't think I could get that app on there. You know? Yeah, and I'll be honest, I I mostly use it for the audio books, not not actually reading. I don't do a whole lot of reading That's on my true. phone. That's true. That's true. But the 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 things that I do keep, like I just reserved the all the pieces matter, the wire like book yeah. that just came out. Uh, I can't wait to read that. But something like that, I actually find easy, quick and easy to read. Like, I don't like reading fiction on my phone, but I can read, like, interviews and oral oral biographies or oral histories or whatever. I can do all that pretty easily on my phone. So that's the type of stuff I'm, I'm checking out right now. Like, books that I'm interested like that that I want to read but haven't don't really want to purchase or order. So cool. everyone should use their local library more is what I'm saying. I agree. I'm, I'm downloading that app right now. Awesome. Well, you got to go to a library, too. Yeah. Well, uh, there's one right by me. I use it um, not as much as I'd like, but I go there a few times. Nice. The only yeah. the only problem I found is sometimes I don't know if it's my taste or if the libraries around here just don't aren't well stocked. But I find that a lot of authors that I look for I have to like specially order, and I don't think of them as like deep cut authors. But you know, like sometimes I'm surprised what they don't have. Well, libraries are dying. I know we gotta we gotta help them out. Yeah. I one one other thing the Can 2018 lineup came out. Oh yeah yeah yeah. I'm looking at the uh, the lineup of films that are in competition. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. We have 18 movies in competition, including films from Jafar Panahi, Hirokazu Koreeda, Jean-Luc Godard, obviously, Asghar Farhadi, Matteo Garon, Paul Pavlikowski, who did uh, a movie I know you loved, right? Which one? Pavlikowski, didn't he do uh, Ira? Oh, he did. He did, I was going to say. Or Ida. 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 Yeah. Uh, Ida. Yeah, he did that one, which I think is one of the best films of the decade. Yes. Yeah. I heard this is his first movie since Jungle Fever to play a can, but Spike Lee is there with Black Klansman. 
Is that true? Um, which I'm, yeah, I'm super excited that he, him, and David Robert Mitchell, uh, who I believe we talked about recently, right? The yeah, well, yeah, director. Yeah, we, yeah, we're talking about his follow up, the the new one that just came out. The yeah, trailer the, just dropped for that one. The two American filmmakers in competition are Spike Lee with Black Klansman and David Robert Mitchell's follow up to It Follows called Under the Silver Lake. So awesome. very excited to see how those do. I would love. You know, Spike Lee is very hit or miss for me, but I would love to see him win at the most prestigious film festival in the world. Hell yeah. I think he, that would be great. He's also, he's got another film coming out this year too. The, the trailer just came out for the other day called Passover. Spike Lee does. It's, but nice. it seems, it's like a filmed play. It's almost like, it seems like he did the Dogville, like Lars von Trier thing, kind of like filming on a stage but he did it in front of an audience. It's, it seems like a weird hybrid of stage and film. So could be interesting. I, I saw a trailer for that recently. Yeah, he's, he likes to experiment. You know, he's remade his own movie. He remade Ganja and Hess from the 70s. He does a lot of documentary work. He did the Michael Jackson and Kobe documentaries. He's all over the place in a cool way. Yeah, that's one thing. Like you said, he's hit or miss, man. But I love Spike Lee. I'm always excited for what he's up to because he's always doing kind of whatever he wants. And he's just, you know doesn't care about the format of the form he's whatever he's making whatever he's interested in and that's what i've always respected and loved about him he's always out there trying it would be cool to see uh spike lee get some love this year with uh if black clansman is great maybe he'll be on the award circuit this year saying what he wants to say because he's spike lee hell yeah it'd be great you know like yeah i love the cast like uh, adam driver uh, Topher grace that it should be interesting to see him do something yeah so good luck to uh, you Americans, because we're Americans and that's all we root for. All right, yeah. So we'll yeah we'll keep an eye out for the reviews, see what wins some prizes. It's always an exciting time, especially like a year later when the films actually come out in America. Yeah, very true. So maybe this time next year we'll start seeing these films. Well, I know Black Klansman already has a U.S. release date. It's coming out in August. Yeah. Well, perfect example is uh, you were never really here premiered at last year's Cannes Film Festival, and it's literally just now coming out. So Yeah, 11 months later. And I got to say, guys, worth the wait. That is a, a movie I hope we will talk about in a further episode once Phil has seen it. Can't wait. I, I will see it as soon as I can. Awesome. All right, well, I will uh, wrap up the episode now. I think that's the show for this week. So everyone listening... Please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show. Give us five stars. Every one of those helps us out incredibly. It helps us spread the word on the podcast. Tell all your friends to listen to. Uh, thank you to Zach Pitts for the theme music, our intro and outro. Every single week, it's a huge gift. I appreciate it. And Thank you, buddy. Yeah, and please find us on Twitter. You can find Tom at Big Fat Bond. That's all one word. And you can find me at Phil Wiedenheft. You can uh, look for us there. And Tom, I'll see you next week, buddy. Yeah, uh, once again, uh, tell everybody tell Phil how wrong he is about Hush. I would appreciate it. And if you could send Tom any messages explaining to him that not everyone likes horror as much as he does, uh, I'd appreciate that as well. And uh, if you like Hush, go see Ouija 2 Origin of Evil because Mike Flanagan directed the shit out of that movie. And I am not joking. That movie's great. Yeah, and be sure to tune into Dr. Sleep, his adaptation of Stephen King's shitty novel. Are you excited for that or no? No, not at all. Okay. Well, good night, everybody. All right, goodbye. All right, I'll see you. <laughs>